Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast. In our 17th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. And good evening, I'm William Hosea. 2021 has been a year of high-profile court cases involving lethal crimes to people of color or cases tangentially related to people of color. Noticeable cases have included Ahmaud Arbery, Kyle Rittenhouse, and the Kim Potter court cases. But recently, a stray bullet fired by a police officer killed Valentina Oriana Peralta, a 14-year-old girl who had recently moved to Los Angeles from Chile. Chile. This senseless killing has enlisted Ben Crump, the civil rights lawyer, who has represented the families of high-profile victims of killings around the country to get involved. And here to help us with an analysis, uh, not to relitigate, but with an analysis of the disturbing and growing trend of senseless lethal violence to people of color and how to hold individuals accountable are Monroe County Prosecutor Eric Oliphant, Chief Deputy Prosecutor Jeff Kerr, and State Police Captain Ruben Marte. And they're all returning guests to bring it on, so uh, no one here is new to this. So our, to our distinguished guests, welcome. To bring it on. Thank you. And from what we just introduced, our introduction, have we gotten anything wrong or were we not necessarily balanced in our presentation of that introduction? Because these are all third realm issues. I know they are. I don't think so. Um, you know, this is a, a really um, complex area. And I think that we're seeing a change in how these issues are being handled, or at least the, the attention that we are putting towards these issues and these events as they take place. Um, certainly we've seen sort of unprecedented uh, press coverage of the actual litigation as it's happening. So people can see the process uh, as it happens. And uh, I think that there are some benefits to that in terms of transparency and um, just keeping people informed on these important events and proceedings. Uh, on the other hand, I think that sometimes the players, um, when they're on a, a grander stage, sometimes maybe they feel some pressure and they don't necessarily um, do things that, uh, that we would hope that they would do in the way that we hope that they would do them. But, you know, it's do a these, complicated thing. Do these... Um performances by individuals on a much larger platform and larger stage, uh, could they possibly um, derail their strategy and trying to either get a conviction or a defense? I'm not sure. Um, you know, I look at some of the mistakes or, or what seemed like uh, missteps that were made in the Kyle Rittenhouse case by the prosecuting attorney. And I think um, what was the cause of that? Was that something where they were trying um, to put on a show for the world, or is it something where they felt so much pressure that nerves got to them? Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what happened there, uh, but I, I know that I would certainly feel a lot of pressure if I knew 
that the whole world was watching. Um, but on the other right. hand, Jeff and I will tell you that um, when you're a trial attorney, you, you're often scrutinized and people are often watching you and you kind of have to get in your zone and focus on what you're doing. Now, speaking of uh, missteps in the Kyle Rittenhouse case, even if the prosecutor had done everything right, the judge in that case seemed to be really biased in some of his comments, um, allowing the the victims to be referred to as looters and, and something else, I think, but not allowing uh, Kyle Rittenhouse to be... Um, uh, it, it escapes me right now, but there was some restrictions on what he said that they could, uh, how they could refer to Kyle Rittenhouse. Jeff, uh, you, you're nodding your head. You, you understand what I'm talking about? Yeah, I think uh, the judge would not allow uh, the defense or, um, I'm sorry, the prosecution to speak of um, them as victims. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and um, I don't think they could be referred to as looters and maybe arsonists um, unless it could be established that they were in fact looters or and, and arsonists. I think that's what the judge had said. And, and the judge seemed to put on a show one day when he just uh, went off on the defense uh, attorney. Uh, it seemed like he was playing to the cameras. I, I think it, it did seem like that. Um, although I can understand a judge being upset by um, the sort of violations that um, he saw the prosecution um, committing in terms of, you know, when whenever you have a trial, you have what we call motions in limine. Um, and those are um, discussed in advance and they're litigated. And what they mean is that only certain evidence can be brought into trial. And uh, so the judge will make pretrial rulings and the parties are to respect those rulings. And if something occurs during the trial that changes the circumstances, then you approach the judge outside the presence of the jury and you say, judge, things have changed now. Is it okay if I bring up this issue that you previously ruled that I could not talk about? Um, and so in this particular case, in the Rittenhouse case, it seemed like from my perception that um, the prosecutor didn't get the judge's permission, just went ahead and brought up things that were not allowed to be talked about because of the pretrial rulings. And, and whenever you do that, a judge is gonna, <laughs> the judge is necessarily gonna be upset with you um, about that. Okay, so okay. I don't know how much of that was the judge being rightly upset or the judge, as you had suggested, maybe, um, wanting a certain outcome uh, and, and therefore making it harder on the prosecution. See, that that's exactly why we uh, invite you all to come on the show and explain these things to us, because watching the way it's portrayed in the media, we, we don't get that story. So, Eric, I'm assuming those were some of the missteps you were talking about. Yeah, those are the things I noticed the most was violating the motion in limine. I mean, that's a that's a big no, no, you're definitely going to get yourself in hot water doing that either party can get themselves in hot water, but the, the prosecution is going to be the one that's going to be um, punished most harshly, either by the trial judge or up on appeal later if they end up being successful. And I think part of the reason for the judges uh, ire, if you will, is 
if the judge um, were to decide that this was a violation of the motion eliminate, it could very well result in a mistrial. Well, all the work that the judge and all the parties have put into the trial at this point to end it and to start over again, that's something that really, really takes a judge off. So um, I think that's, if, if you look at it from that standpoint, then a judge is naturally gonna be upset if they think, oh man, we gotta start this all over again because here's the prosecutor playing fast and loose with my uh, my rulings. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's especially going to tick somebody off when you have to call such a large pool of potential jurors just to seat an unbiased jury. Well, now that you've explained it, I'm ticked off. <laughs> well, you know, I'm, I'm thinking that uh, just recently it was discovered that one of the jurors had a sort of a shady past themselves. And even though the rulings come down and even the sentence has been meted out, um, how much trouble can the prosecutors find themselves? Well, how damaged can their case be? Even though it's been, I guess, adjudicated, but then it's found out that one juror may have had a, uh, a sexual harassment complaint, especially if it's in a case pertaining to a sexual crime of some nature. What can that do to a prosecutor? Well, I don't think the prosecutor is going to have a real remedy at this point. Um, once there's an acquittal, uh, we don't typically get to retry a case. Um, you know, that's unfortunate that you would find that out after. But technically, that doesn't disqualify somebody from serving as a juror. It's just probably someone that the state uh, would have tried to use a strike against to not have that person on the jury. Wow. So ultimately, that's that's not something the state's probably going to be able to um, to deal with after the fact. Right. Um, then and then in one of the trials, I'm not sure if it was the uh, Red House, maybe the Arbery case, where uh, the defense claimed that while well, you're parading uh, high-profile pastors or other uh, high-profile individuals into the court as guests to, to watch the proceedings. And somehow that sways the jury or somehow that sort of brings a taint on the whole proceedings. What's your, what's your opinion about that? You know, I, uh, I had not heard that. Um, it probably depends on how it, how it was done. I mean, it's complicated because you've got a proceeding that is open, open to the public. We need to make sure that the public can see what the courts are doing and how they're operating. Um, but it's, on the other hand, you don't want to allow um, something that's going to cause the jury to consider things that are outside of the evidence in the law when making their decision. So, um, you know, it's ultimately up to the judge to control that courtroom and decide if that's an issue or not. Uh, and, and one more follow up. Um, you said open to the public. And I think I've heard open to the public. So I understand. Help me out. That's what we have the, the legal expertise on tonight. Grand juries. The benefit of a grand jury is that those proceedings are sealed. And from what I understand, testimony cannot even be leaked from a grand jury. It often is. But nevertheless, there, there's, there's not the transparency that we have come to maybe expect on um, with, with some court cases. And does every case qualify for a grand jury? So can you explain that process of how the grand jury ties into all this? I'll do my best here. Um, so in federal court, you actually have to constitutionally have a grand jury in order to bring charges, criminal charges against someone. Um, but in the, at the state court level, particularly in Indiana, um, we have the option of doing a grand jury, but we don't have to. 
Um, we can charge by information, which means that a prosecutor can review the case and um, decide what to charge. And that's how we do it typically. Um, I, Jeff may know, but in um, 12 years that I've been here, I've never seen a state grand jury here locally. Um, it's a lot of resources uh, to use. And um, I think the benefit of a grand jury to answer that part of your question um, is that the state gets an opportunity to um, test its evidence and decide if it's actually going to be persuasive or not. Um, there's a little bit of a chance to investigate beyond what is presented to you by law enforcement and the other witnesses. So you can, you can kind of dig into the evidence a little bit deeper than you might be just reading police reports and, and that kind of thing. Um, I, I think those are, those are some of the benefits of, of doing it that way. Um, but you're right, I think it does create kind of a distrust because people, they are sealed, people don't get to see how they go on. And, and I'm sure you've noticed or seen that um, prosecutors tend to use them in high profile difficult cases where um, it, it looks like, though it may not be the case, and I can't, I can't say one way or another, it certainly gives the public the perception that the prosecutor is using the grand jury as a scapegoat to um, decline charges or, um, and, and so there's always that like, did the prosecutor use their best effort to present that evidence in an unbiased way so that those people could make that, make the correct decision? Um, or is it truly a case that, that the evidence does not support the charges? It's, it's um, I, th I think that there are a lot of issues with grand juries. I, um, I think that I am glad that I don't have to do them uh, here because it, it just seems like a lot of resource use, a lot of time use, and um, you're, you're asking people who don't have legal training to decide uh, whether you have to, to prosecute a case. And at the end of the day, you have to be the one to present that evidence beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury to get a conviction. And I, you know, I'd rather live with my own decision on that, or, or Mr. Kerr's more likely, he does a lot of our charging in our office. Yeah, yeah and I think, as Erica said, you know, um, uh, out in uh, Missouri, after Ferguson, I think the St. Louis County prosecutor utilized a grand jury um, instead of making the charging decision um, himself or herself. I can't, I can't remember who the prosecutor was at the time, but um, Certainly, um, some people view that as, you know, you just want to escape the decision. You know, if the grand jury says uh, we don't indict, then you go, well, sorry, that's what the grand jury said. Um, if they do indict, well, then, you know, you, you're stuck prosecuting the case or, you know, whatever. But, um, but I, I think that's how a grand jury can be viewed sometimes is you're just trying to escape making the decision unless you're in a state that requires grand jury, like I believe Kentucky, I don't believe you can charge by information. I believe it has to be uh, by grand jury in Kentucky, just like the federal government. So Clarence, I'm actually kind of glad you touched on the uh, Arbery case. Uh, in fact, the black pastors issue was in the Arbery trial. And I think one of the defense attorneys was pretty brazen when he said, we don't want any more black pastors coming into the courtroom. Uh, but I want to go to Ruben for a minute. Um, I'm just going to assume you're familiar with the uh, Arbery case down in Georgia. Yes. But 
from your perspective as a law enforcement officer, um, what what are your thoughts on that? Because the two gentlemen, uh, the the, tra- the father and son duo, um, who had a hand in uh, killing Ahmad Arbery, were not arrested at the scene. So, what 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 are your thoughts on that? Well, the, the first thing that that I thought of, I couldn't believe that the father was a retired officer himself. Yeah, yeah. So in my mind, and I forgot how many years it was that he was an officer, and I can't remember if he was a sergeant. So in my mind, I'm thinking, I could see someone trying to think he's doing the right thing, but he 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 had to know better. I mean, I, I, the amount of years that he's been a police officer, I would think he would understand let 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 the uniform people approach him and do what they do that way there's no misunderstanding and then when i heard about you know they were trying to make a citizen's arrest i'm thinking to myself there was no urgency at that given time i you know that's the part that had me so puzzled that if you call it in give a description and then let the uniform personnel do what they do which you know they could talk to him and say, hey, you, you know, are you okay? Or can we help you? And, you know, move on. But the way they did it, it just, it was just, it was just, I, I just couldn't, it, it just didn't make sense to me because all he was doing was jogging, you know. Um, so if they perceived that he was doing something illegal, well, then you call down one one and you stipulate what you saw and then let the uniformed personnel take care of it. I think the uh, elder McMichael was a detective who worked for the prosecutor that refused to bring charges. Okay. And in fact, yeah, I want to go back to uh, Erica and Jeff on this one because she was uh, indicted and charged with misconduct for her handling of the case. Uh, uh, the felony charge is violating her oath of office and then a misdemeanor char- account of obstruct- obstructing justice. How serious, I, I know it's nothing to joke about, but exactly how serious is that to a person in her position? What kind of uh, consequences uh, is she looking at? I'm not sure that I know the range of penalties. I tried to look this up and... Um... I didn't, I didn't ultimately find the range of penalties, but I can tell you that uh, it's going to have very serious uh, repercussions for her career. Um, you know, she's probably, if, if they are successful with these um, charges, she's going to lose her license to practice law and uh, certainly not going to be uh, able to work in the same way that she, she was before. Um, I, I want to say that I read somewhere that she might be facing, oh, I did find it. Okay, potential maximum sentence of six years of incarceration is what she's facing. Um, and certainly the way she handled this was um, was not, uh, not uh, in such a manner that would avoid the appearance of impropriety. It was quite the opposite. It looked like she was trying to help out a friend or a former um, associate and, you know, that we just can't do that. Georgia has surprised me um, three times so far. First is that 
the uh, the men were arrested, uh, then they were charged and then found guilty. I, you could not have convinced me that a jury of only one person of color was going to convict those three men of uh, killing a black man in, in the deep south. I, I just didn't believe it. So I was shocked when they came back with the guilty verdict and then the, the life sentence. I mean, but um, one other thing that I wanted to ask you about was uh, the defense attorney. Now, the judge kind of emphasized at the sentencing that he felt the defendants had no remorse. And if if I'm correct, that played a part in, in the sentence that he gave them. But going back to the defense attorney, did her long, dirty toenails comment hurt her clients at all? I mean, there was an audible gasp in the courtroom when she said that. Did that hurt her clients? I, I want to think so. Um, I, you know, I want to believe that uh, be, being so incivil and, and using that kind of language and, and tone is, is not something that people want to hear or see um, from professionals in the courtroom. Jeff? Yeah, I, I mean, I agree. You, um, you know, trials are like, I, I like to say they're like popularity contests. I mean, they, the jury wants to know that um, everybody is above board and um, they want to know that um, the attorneys are um, ethical and honest and therefore what they're presenting um, is something that they can believe. And when you have attorneys acting like this, then that runs counter to the ethical and honest, um, you know, perception um, that jurors want to see. So I, I do think they, um, they will take that into account for sure. You just uh, joined us we're having uh, an end up conversation with three individuals. Uh, the first Monroe County Chief Deputy Prosecutor Jeff Kerr and State Police Captain Ruben Marte. And, and again, I mentioned at the beginning of the hour that these three guests have been with us before. It's always uh, a delight to have them back. We have had some difficult conversations in the past, uh, talking about outcomes of trials and strategies in the courtroom. Uh, and they have done a wonderful job in deciphering just uh, the legal uh, maneuvering that can go on. I, I have a series of questions that pertain to prosecuting law enforcement officers. Yeah, and, and that we have seen in 2021, some cases that involve not only bringing charges, but uh, ultimate um, renderings of a, of a guilty verdict in some of these cases. But I, I wanna sort of set the background as far as what my understanding is, as far as prosecutorial discretion, those powers that are, are just really awesome. In most state criminal cases, police arrest individuals and bring the case to the district attorney's office, or in Monroe County's case, to the prosecutor's office. And correct me if that assumption is not correct. And the police only need pro probable cause to make an arrest. But how does the prosecutor determine whether or not to charge? And are the state and federal cases similar when deciding to charge? And, and we'll, of course, defer to um, Erica on this one. Yeah, thank you. So, um, you know, when we're presented with a case, for me, when I'm reviewing for charging, I want to see more than probable cause. Uh, at the end of the day, I'm going to have to prove this case beyond a reasonable doubt. And so um, I try to 
have that focus when I'm reviewing cases. I also try to keep an eye out for any constitutional issues that might be wrong with the case. If you end up having a search and seizure violation or of some kind or a Miranda violation, um, you know, is that something that we can overcome when we're trying to litigate this case to completion? Um, you know, if I see an investigation that's incomplete, I will reach back out to law enforcement and ask that they do some follow-up work, if, especially if it's a serious case. Um, but yeah, usually what I'm looking for is, is this something that I can prove beyond a reasonable doubt? And if that's the case, uh, and I think that the case is worthwhile, then um, I will file charges. Uh, you know, I have not practiced in a grand jury system, but I know a, a few prosecutors who have, and when they, um, when you're talking about a federal case that they're going to um, try to indict on, I know that they are very uh, loath to put anything in front of a grand jury that they don't think is going to end up with a conviction. So, um, so they really do try to have um, thorough investigations there as well. Sometimes, one thing I will say is sometimes at the time of the charging decision, you don't have all of the um, information that you might want to have. Uh, you know, sometimes you find out down the road that your witnesses have, um, have issues that, that you weren't aware of. And that's not really any fault of the police or the investigation necessarily. It's just um, some of these things don't come out until you start doing um, depositions and other kinds of discovery in the case down the road. If, if I'm reviewing, sorry, go ahead. I, I, was, I was just gonna add to that, you know, if um, I'm reviewing a case and I do need more information, I have the ability to ask the court for a 72 hour continuance of the initial hearing. And that, that buys me some extra time to reach out to law enforcement, uh, see if I can get surveillance uh, footage um, you know, from nearby businesses, um, review the body cameras, that sort of thing, um, so that I can make a more informed decision. Um, but usually, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to, to turn the cases around pretty quickly um, to comply with our initial hearing deadlines. So, but if there's any question, I will ask the court for additional time. And we've always been granted that additional time to do that. That was, that was sort of a lead up to, to a more in-depth conversation pertaining to, to prosecuting law enforcement. Now, being a prosecuting attorney requires not only a passion for advocacy, but an understanding that your position requires you to seek the truth. Prosecutors, therefore, are held to a higher standard because of this. Now, how should a prosecutor perceive with seeking justice against a law enforcement officer who has grossly violated their duty, as in the case with Kim Potter and Derek Chabot. Well, it's, it's always been my position that the law applies to everyone. Uh, we need to make sure that um, we're applying it even-handedly and that we are expecting these people who have a lot of power and authority, and I'd include myself in that, I would want to be held to the same standard as anyone else. Um, you know, I, I I'm of the opinion that if you have violated the law, I can no longer trust you. And I, you know, I wanna see you brought to justice. Uh, that being said, you know, if a Monroe County law enforcement officer were to do something that I felt violated the law, 
I would definitely try to avoid the appearance of impropriety. I wouldn't want a Jackie Johnson situation over here, um, like we saw with the Ahmad Arbery case, and I would be inclined to get a special prosecutor and have somebody who doesn't work here look at that. On the other hand, that means that I sort of have to be willing if another jurisdiction in Indiana needs a special prosecutor to at least consider um, stepping up to those challenges for those those officers. Fortunately, I have not been called to serve in, in that capacity, but um, you know, I do think it's important that we hold these people to um, to a reasonable standard of of treating the public with with care and and upholding their duties. Yeah. Ruben, it's time to put you back on the hot seat again. Um, well, before you do, I think Jeff had something just to add to that. By all means. Sorry. Oh, no, that's okay. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the phrase I like to use is ministers of justice. Um, that is a phrase that was used in the U.S. Supreme Court case um, referring to prosecutors. So we're ministers of justice. And what that means is we are tasked with um, making sure that the process is fair. Um, if, you know, we believe a defendant is not being properly re represented, um, it's our uh, duty to inform the court. Um, if there's exculpatory evidence or um, evidence that um, impeaches one of our witnesses, it's our duty to disclose that. So, um, it, you know, in the course of all of that, um, if we have an officer who is not an honest officer, um, then the fairness of the process is disturbed. And, um, you know, that's something that we need to vigorously pursue. Um, and so, um, you know, even though in, the, in our regular duties, we become close with some of these law enforcement officers, um, which is why, as Erica suggested, for the appearance of impropriety, that's why we need to um, have an outside prosecutor come in, um, you know, and look at it. Um, so. Thank you. So, Ruben, going back to uh, the Kim Potter case again where she was convicted of manslaughter, I think, for uh, shooting and killing Dante Wright. Uh, she mistakenly drew her, her pistol instead of a taser. Uh, both of those are similar in, in, in their structure, right? Both have a, a pistol grip, both of them have a muzzle, a barrel. So when this incident happened, you could hear her in the video yell, taser, taser, but yet she pulled her handgun. So, what kind of training does law enforcement receive to be able to not make that kind of uh, mistake in the heat of a, uh, any moment? So for transparency, let me start this way. Um, when I worked the road, we didn't have tasers. So I never you know, used a taser. And as I move up the ranks, I never had one on my duty belt. Now, that being said, when I see officers that are being trained on taser, particularly our own troopers, they have to be tased themselves. So before you get assigned your taser, you have to be tased or you know how that feels. And when we train, <clears throat> excuse me, with a, with, a, with a deadly weapon, we normally have that on your strong uh, dominant side. So if I'm righty, I will have my firearms on my right side of my body. And if I'm going to carry a taser, it will be in my weak side. So in other words, I intentionally have to reach across my body, yell taser, and grab the taser. Now, not knowing what type of training that police department uh, afforded their police officers, I can't tell you if they practice that constantly. I can tell you that we do. 
um, multiple different situations because the taser is a good tool. But for example, if you have a active shooter and you go into a very, very uh, stressful situation because at an active shooter, you're gonna have to go in on your own. And if someone is actually using a deadly weapon, then you're not gonna think about using your taser because of the active shooter. Now, every situation is so differently that we really can't predict all the scenarios that could take place. So it's really up to the officer who gets there to determine, am I gonna use uh, deadly force or I'm gonna use an intimate weapon? So it's very complicated to explain to the public, okay, how did she make that mistake? I, I don't know. I, I don't know um, lack of practice. I don't know uh, lack of training. I, I, I just don't know. However, it was a crucial, crucial, crucial uh, situation. And she has to be held accountable. Although, you know, let's say it was a mistake. I mean, I, 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 I not being in her head, we, we still are held to a higher standard. And, and, and if you are going to carry those tools, you have to be proficient with that. There's just no way around it because we're trusting you to do the right thing at the split second, but we still want you to be highly trained. And that's why we, and when I mean we, I'm, I'm to the department that I work for now, we're constantly training, constantly because of right. where you, you know, we're going to make mistakes. So, Erica and Jeff, um, even if it could be argued that Kim Potter made an honest mistake, even if uh, that were the case, was she prosecuted for being a 26 year veteran who should not make that kind of mistake? I think she was prosecuted because we can't have a 26 year old veteran make this kind of mistake. Um, I'll take that know. as a yes. <laughs> I, I think it's like Ruben said, it, it, you know, if you're going to use these tools, you, you're going to need to be proficient. And um, clearly a jury believed that she was uh, criminally liable for this. So, um, you know, this was a, this was a tough case, I think, for law enforcement. Um, but uh, the prosecutor seems to have um, presented a good case in, in this situation. That was a uh, tough case. And uh, Derek Chauvin's um, trial was a tough case from the standpoint that law enforcement administration has to go back to the rank and file and restore morale, confidence. Um, because with, with one stroke, they've been painted as irresponsible, as, as reckless. And so it's the police chief or, or whomever is in charge has to go back and remind the rank and file that we are protecting and serving. And Ruben, I, I want to specifically ask you, I know there's sleepless nights when those situations happen without, without question, but how hard is it to reinstill pride in the work they do and combat turnover? Or, you know, some people just transfer out of those situations, but you have to preserve uh, that department. What do you do? You know, that's, that's really difficult because I could tell you, um, I, I hear both sides. So I could understand the fear and uh, the mistrust that the community have 
you know, with the police because based on what they experience, you know, oh, I, I understand that. But then seeing it through the lens of an officer, I get that as well, because you're, what you said is 100% true. A person, an officer could do something negative, intentionally or intentionally, in one state, and all of us are going to pay the price, no matter what. So I, that's why I really think it's very crucial that, and, we, and when I mean we, I mean law enforcement in general have to do a better job in making sure that the community that they serve have a better understanding through our lens. Because there was a time, you know, before I became a trooper, I, I had no idea of what officers face, you know. But at the same time, I had a very good idea of the fear that the community had for the police. So it's a difficult thing to try to build morale up again when on the, on the sworn side, thinking, you know, it wasn't me that did what happened in another state, but I'm paying the price for it anyway. And being human, I get it, I understand that. But then I also try to explain to the sworn side, listen, I truly understand your stance and, and that it wasn't, it wasn't you, I get that. But you have to understand that we know this culture, the community truly does not understand what we do at times. And to be frank, anytime you put hands on someone and you're in uniform, it never looks good. It, it, it does not look good. And God forbid, you know, you take a human life protecting yours or someone else's, that definitely is not gonna go well. So it's a very complex situation, but I truly believe that, that, that we need to really, really keep constantly, constantly uh, keeping the public appraised of what we're doing, making sure that the officers in the mingle with the, with the community as much as you can when things are good. Not when it, not when it hits the fan, because at that point, it's it, it just emotions and fear would take over. And when that happens, nothing good comes out of it. You know, the, the, the entertainment, I think we have an echo here. The uh, entertainment uh, industry has uh, has really done a good job and sometimes showing us what it's like to be on the side of law enforcement or what it's like to be on the side of uh, being a prosecutor or a defense attorney. But boy, they've done us a grave injustice in that they portray an officer as being able to fire off six rounds or more, depending on the weapon they have, and then go to a bar, get a drink, and they're okay. They don't have any more ramifications over what's been done, and it's a righteous shoot, as they say. And then Law & Order, those episodes are, are sort of uh, replete with the strategies in the courtroom. And then as the viewing audience, you're left with trying to decipher, wow, what's it really like? But I can imagine you know, such things as the ride-along or... Uh, just sitting sometimes in a court case and watching the stress and anxiety, you know, watching someone have to defend themselves as well as someone have to try to prosecute someone who's done something. Uh, until you walk in those shoes, it's hard to kind of judge. But the patterns and trends we see are more than just disturbing or alarming. It's, it's kind of leaving the public thinking, what is going on? So if all three of you could speak towards how do we calm the fears of the public that you all serve? And, you know, Ruben, you did a 
a wonderful series of workshops on how to survive such things as pullovers or encounters with law enforcement, what to do if you feel that someone has crossed the line with you, and uh, to do it in a, a very intelligent and safe way. So, so Ruben, if I could start with you, and then let's move to our, uh, our guest from the prosecutor's office to talk about uh, just how do we make sense of what's going on? Ruben? I uh, been doing this now for about eight years now, talking to the community and training on the policeman side. And what I notice automatically when I talk to the community side, and I could be anywhere between six people in the room. At one time I stopped at 100. And it could be students, it could be the general public, you know, normally someone's gonna tell you a story or negativity to have with the police. And I have to be, I have to listen very carefully on what they're telling me because they're telling me for a reason. And as they're telling me, they're reliving what they've been through. But other people in that room are living the exact same thing that happened to them and experience what they have with the police. I could tell you that also simultaneously in that same room, people will volunteer and say, hey, my experience with the police was positive. However, when we, when we actually take the time to explain certain things that we do, it goes a long way because when we start the conversation, the, 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 the emotions are high, there's a lot of fear and you get looks, you know, I get looks at that, that sideways that kind of like, are, are you, are you keeping up with my people 100 with us type of deal? And I have to be willing to explain to them, hey, you might not like my explanation to you, but if you go back and check, is the truth, okay? So the goal is that we, we, we don't have to agree on everything, but the goal is both sides can walk away with a better understanding, and that takes time. So with the community, when we, when we talk with the community, it could be anywhere with three hours, and, and I'll stay until the last question is answered, and I assure them of that. And that goes a long way because now you start to understand. Now, I could tell you that one of the sentences that I keep hearing over and over again, it says, it, is that we told you certain officers were doing certain things. You didn't believe us until now. You have dash cam and body cam. That changed the game. And also your cell phone with a, with a camera. That, that changed everything. Because now when it's visual, people could see it. Now, that's good in one aspect. But the camera's not going to catch every single angle. And if, and, if, and if you see one way, it doesn't mean that the other person's going to see the exact same way. Now, that being said, to keep it balanced, on the policeman side, a lot of officers do not understand why is it that people of color act a certain way when they're stopped by the police. So on that side, we have a lengthy conversation say, okay, just because you didn't experience it in a certain way, and they know me and trust me. And I can say, listen, I could tell you how I was treated when I was younger. And, they, and, and it carries with them because they know that I'm not going to tell them something that's not factual because we already built that rapport. We know each other for years. That resonates to a degree. So that's the beginning of the trying to understanding of both sides and trying to meet somewhere in the middle. Because you said it best. We both want to leave that traffic stop alive. And if we could accomplish that, that both sides could de-escalate and not have the fear of each other, then that's the progress that I'm looking, look, looking to achieve. And I can tell you that I've seen it and that, that brings a lot of happiness to me because the media doesn't portray that, you don't see it in the news, but when, when, when I'm talking to a group of people that have an animosity towards the police and at the end of the three hours, 
we're talking and they they you will see that that the level of, of stress is, is is brought down and the exact same thing on the policeman side and when we bring each other together in an event that has nothing to do with negativity because when we call something went wrong when we call to a scene it's because we've been called to be there and it's sad to say that sometimes things don't go well as it should because either for whatever reason emotions are high levels of illness whatever the case may be so yes we do hold ourselves to a higher standard and yes we constantly have to train but we also got to make sure at this point that we explain our action to the community and i'm gonna use one example and i'll stop in it was a 2015, and I believe it was uh, uh, Charleston, uh, North Carolina, where a you see a black male being stopped by a white police officer. They get into a scuffle near the police car. The black male takes off running. The officer takes aim, and I believe, I, I think I stopped counting at seven or eight, he shoots. But the bottom line is he shoots him in the back. In other words, there was no threat there. Someone caught that on film. That officer was held accountable quickly. In that city, there was no riots. Nothing happened. One, because he was held accountable. Two, two the chief kept the public appraised in a certain way what was going on, so it didn't look like he was trying to hide anything. And nothing happened in that city. So I go back and I try to look, okay, why, why, why in, in a particular city nothing takes place, but another one it does? And try to mimic why is it that they're doing, what are they doing with the community for them to give the police time to do their job and present what they have to the prosecutors so they could, they could do their job. Although this individual was a former police officer with the long ribs. I'd like to turn to Erica, Erica or Jeff uh, for a follow-up in the interest of time. So if either one of you want to further elaborate on what uh, Ruben was talking about, please feel free. Yeah, I think that Ruben did a good job of answering that question. Um, you know, from my own perspective as a prosecutor, I think it's really important that we listen to what our constituency has to say. There are a lot of different um, opinions and, and, uh, and views on things, but, um, you know, it, it's important not to, uh, you know, be on a pedestal and be removed from the public, but to rather hear um, what they're up to. And I think, uh, we have a big obligation to um, try to look at our own practices and see um, what we can do better and if we're living up to our constitutional ideals um, and, and being equitable and fair. So that's what I'd add. And, and I would add, I, I think we, we're very accessible um, at our prosecutor's office, you know, here in Monroe County. I think... Um, you know, citizens can call in and, and we respond to them. Um, and we're, we're willing to, um, you know, we're, we're able to explain the decisions that we make. Um, and I think that's important because that helps foster trust with the community. Um, but I think, I think you know, I, I can't speak for other prosecutor's offices in Indiana necessarily, but I think we, the citizens here, um, uh, should feel comfortable to contact us. And, and um, you know, there's certain things that the rules of ethics prevent us from talking about and, and, and that sort of thing. For instance, if there's a pending case, we can't comment on it. And uh, folks don't always understand that. Um, but um, but I, I think we're very um, open and accessible and um, transparent. And I think that's what you need to, 
to be to foster trust and, and fairness in the process. In the last few minutes that we have left, I want to talk about uh, Valentina Peralta, and we haven't touched on it too much, but, and, and I want to compare that to the Kim Potter case in uh, Minneapolis, a completely different set of circumstances, but what they share is that both officers made a mistake. The one officer in the Peralta case goes into the mall and uh, fires, I think, six or seven shots. One of the shots goes through the uh, wall of the dressing room, kills a 14-year-old girl. So this is obviously a mistake. And they have not um, released the officer's name yet. But is this another case where the mistake is so egregious that that officer could possibly face charges? Uh, and let me add to that by saying, when they go into the mall, they don't encounter uh, someone with a gun. I think the, the woman who called 911 reported that the individual was swinging a bike lock and he had attacked and injured uh, a woman and she was bleeding on the floor. But was he justified in using lethal force um, in this case? And was that... Uh, and resulting in the death of that young girl, is that bad enough where this officer could be charged? Well, you know, I, 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 I'll, I'll start by saying I don't know all the particulars of, of, of that case. Um, that's, a difficult, that's a difficult one to answer, not knowing all the particulars. Um, in my mind, if I'm walking into a situation an unknown and, and he's swinging... A, a weapon at someone, you know, each department, each state has its own, what's the word, or has its own policies and regulation. However, I do have a duty to try to save somebody else's life if, if, if I deem it to be that that person is, is truly going to kill someone else. So that's very tricky. Um, however, just by the mere fact that a, a young girl was killed by a bullet that that was fired by a police officer, if that is the case. Oh God, that's just that 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 is something that it, it is it's so difficult to even to articulate it to explain. You know, if it can be so, not knowing all the particulars, I really can't be. Uh, uh, what's the word? Give you certain insights that I might have in my own. I just don't know it. It doesn't look good. Definitely, someone, some, some parents have lost their daughter. It doesn't look good at all. Well, uh, Erica or Jeff, as uh, prosecutors, um, what do you think about that, yeah, or or do you agree with Ruben that, in this case, from your vantage point, there really just isn't any way to determine whether or not charges are, are warranted in this case. But you need more information. Yeah, I would say that I'm not, um, you know, I'm only uh, familiar with this case on a surface level. So I don't have enough information to really say whether this could be successful prosecution or not. Unfortunately, I'm sorry. I think in terms of the analysis that you're looking at, you're looking as a prosecutor to determine whether this is negligence, which would be more of a civil standard, or are you or is it reckless, which in Indiana would be more of a criminal 
uh, standards. So, you, you know, uh, negligence is, you know, you owe a duty to somebody and you breach that duty. Um, the, the recklessness is more you're, you're consciously disregarding a known justifiable risk. So that's kind of what the prosecutor would be weighing. And of course, it's going to be dependent on California law and the facts, et cetera. Okay. If, if, I, if I could add to that really quickly now, that uh -huh. we, 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 we gave you what we do for a living. Right. But there's so much stigma right now, negativity, that on the community side, they're going to say, here we go again. Right, right. Everything flares well, up again. Well, here's, here's another spin on that. And I want to maybe end with this. This is what I pulled off today. And I just want to get your reaction to this recent internal memo that was dispatched by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. Newly sworn, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg released an internal policy memo outlining criminal offenses he will no longer prosecute, including fair beating, I guess, uh, getting on a subway without paying, marijuana misdemeanors, resisting arrest, trespassing, and prostitution as long as they do not accompany other felonies. Is that a shot across your bow or what? Did you say resisting arrest? Resist, well, he said resisting arrest. He, he refuses to prosecute. Th th that's a very, very slippery slope. That's scary because not only do they have, this is, Manh this is uh, uh, Manhattan, was it you said? Or? Manhattan District Attorney's Office. Okay. New York that has had a problem with crime, yes. So being from New York City myself, I could tell you that that right now the mayor, would, it, it, I think he's the he's the second black mayor that New York City has had. He appointed the first black female commissioner. So they, the spotlight is on them as far as reduce the crime. But this is the thing: it's a vicious cycle. One of the things that the reason the crimes are up is because they did away with certain units, did away with certain funds, and crime is going to go up. Okay, I won't get into very specifics right now. We don't have time about that. But when you when you advertise, and this is my opinion, you know, uh, I've been doing this for a long time. But if the bad guy knows that I could fight you and resist you, and it's going to be no penalty, well, that's what they're going to do, you know. Um, and then we are held to a higher standard, but we got to go home too as well to our family. So when I hear that, that's concerning to me. Although although it's over there, I, I get that, but. If we're going to hold our people to higher standards, goodness, if someone breaks the law, let's hold them accountable as well. That's all we're asking. So I don't know what the thought process there. And I, 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 but when I hear that part, that portion, that worries me because I don't know if you're aware of this. The New York City uh, uh, plainclothes detective that their sole job was to go after guns on the streets was disbanded. Well, if you disband that unit, what do you think is going to happen? You're going to have all guns on the street, on the turf. Now, I am all for holding officers accountable. If you do not do your job at the highest standards, you're going to, you have to be held accountable. Right. But at the same time, when you take away certain tools, you're hurting the community that, that needs to help. Right. right. Erica, can you chime in with remaining uh, 90 seconds that we have? Yeah, I'll try to make it fast um, to sort of piggyback on what Ruben's saying, you know, back when the COVID-19 shutdown quarantine happened, um, I had a group of activists who were asking me to say that I was not going to let anybody be held in jail for a misdemeanor. And I respectfully said, that's not something I'm going to advertise because domestic battery is a misdemeanor. 
there are misdemeanors that can be very fatal. And so I, you know, I'm not going to advertise that we're not going to have those people in jail. That being said, I poured over the jail list and let a lot of folks out of jail that we wouldn't normally let out of jail to try to avoid the, the spread of the virus. But I, you know, I have come under some fire in my own administration when I said that I uh, would not refuse to prosecute possession of marijuana cases. And um, my reasoning behind that is because I think under Indiana statute and constitution, uh, it's unethical and illegal for me to refuse to prosecute something um, that the legislature, the Indiana General Assembly has decided is the law. It's not my role constitutionally. Now I have a lot of discretion. I can tell you I had five convictions for possession of marijuana in 2021. So it's not something that I go after very strenuously, but I do think it's a dangerous game to let prosecutors decide what they are going to prosecute and what they're not going to prosecute. And I think you just look at um, the Ahmad Arbery case as, as an example of that. So thank you. Well, we've, we've come to that time and uh, we've come to the end of the hour. And of course, if hopefully we could do this again because there are more questions, but we want to thank Monroe County Prosecutor Eric Oliphant, Chief Deputy Prosecutor Jeff Kerr and State Police Captain Ruben Marte for helping us come to grips and have a better understanding of the growing trend of a feeling of senseless lethal violence to people of color and observations and recommendations on how to hold individuals across the spectrum more accountable. Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have any ideas for this program, we would like to hear them. Please send your emails to our volunteer staff. We want to make sure we share any and everything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. Our email address is bringiton at wfhb.org. If you have an event or happening that African-American community should know about, please send the info directly to the Bring It On staff. Or if you want additional information about tonight's guest, contact us at bringiton at wfhb.org. Our show's executive producer is Clarence Boone. Assistant producer is yours truly. Our consultant and WFHB News Department director is Kate Young. Our program engineer is Chantal LaFontaine. Original theme, theme music was created by Jamil Effiam with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm William Hosea. And Clarence Boone. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.